Adolf Hitler established the Nazi Party in 1925, using established democratic norms to achieve power. The resentment of the Treaty of Versailles, the Great Depression, mass unemployment, and national pride were tools used as the perfect wedge that brought increasing numbers of Germans to his cause, using his passionate pleas and lashing out at capitalists, communists, and Jews. Without ever achieving a majority in the Reichstag, Hitler and the Nazi party became a formidable force in 1932. The German people elected Hitler Chancellor of Germany in 1933. Later that year, after a mysterious fire burned the Reichstag building, Hitler proposed and the Reichstag adopted an enabling bill giving Hitler dictatorial powers. Hitler was now the sole leader, the Fuhrer of Germany. Hitler abolished the trade unions and banned all other political parties, sending their leaders to concentration camps. And by the end of 1933, Hitler's camps held over 150,000 political prisoners. He began to round up beggars, prostitutes, homosexuals, and alcoholics next. Moreover, this was before he sealed his authoritarian rise by purging the lives of the last prominent Germans with the Night of the Long Knives in 1934. The history is well documented from there. The problem with history books and movies is that the long game unfolds over pages over a couple of hours. Nazis didn't just roll into and take over the Reichstag, the German peoples, and sweep across Western Europe in the amount of time it took to read a chapter in your high school history class. And he didn't do it with all the peoples of the world unaware. The people of the world just didn't want to see it. Throughout history, the aggressors are the ones who get the print biographical pieces on the History Channel. However, too often evil men like Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Saddam Hussein, all the way back to Genghis Khan, carry a well-deserved amount of blame. But they're nothing without those who give them power. Acting as the hands of the aggressors, meeting out the evil man's demands and punishments. The aggressors have a dark place in history, but we often forget the enablers. The enablers bear a portion of responsibility as well. After all, it's the enablers who rationalize the rise of homegrown autocrats and kleptocrats facilitating corruption and rot through a number of means, be it self-serving or cowardice. The podcast you'll hear today was recorded a few weeks back, and the first part dealt with those aggressors in an episode titled... The conservative forces of brokenness. Since that episode aired on June 21st, 2022, the January 6th hearings have constructed an unassailable argument in explaining the insurrection and why American democracy can no longer withstand a restoration of Donald Trump. While the Republican Party in Texas offered a series of far-right declarations as part of its official platform over the weekend, claiming that President Biden was not legitimately elected, issuing a rebuke to Senator John Cornyn and his work on bipartisan gun legislation, and referring to homosexuality as an abnormal lifestyle choice. That's only the beginning. It opposes any racial teaching, wants prayer, the Bible, and the Ten Commandments to return to public schools, and one requirement in the curriculum? that Texas school children must learn about the humanity of the pre-born child. But I guess it's liberals who are the groomers, right? Okay. <laughs> Reading this, uh, or even saying it out loud, it sounds insane. But this is going on right in front of your face, on your TV, in your news feeds. And in that time, Roe vs. Wade has fallen, beginning a game of unenumerated rights Jenga. The Tower of Rights wobbling from side to side with each decision it hands down. Not everybody stood by idly. Like Churchill before, some actors have seen something coming for 30 years while others looked away because, well, there's many reasons, but mostly it's an uncomfortable truth. Dr. Andrew Schmuckler is not one of those people who stood by. He sounded the alarm since 2004, and when looking at the aggressive actions at hand, be it the Nazis or the current state of American politics, the aggressor is the aggressor because they saw an opening, a vulnerability. And where the first part of this discussion was about those conservative aggressors, this part focuses on the democratic enablers. In the second part of our discussion, Dr. Schmuckler and I discuss what he believes his studies have pinpointed. These defects, 
and how their rise gave way to this vulnerability in liberal America. It's a take I haven't really heard before, but when Dr. Schmuckler makes his case, it's difficult to deny. But find out for yourself and enjoy the Dr. Andrew Bard Schmuckler with Jay Burke Show Part 2, The Three Defects Afflicting Liberal America. Watch out, you might get what you're after. to bring up some with with the press because you mentioned them do you think the press were oblivious to this I, I just find it hard to believe they didn't have some sense for instance do you think that maybe they were fearful of how they came off in other words they wanted to come off objective well they got intimidated by that liberal media thing that the, yeah the, that's yeah the right started pounding what maybe in the late 80s or mm-hmm. something like that yeah, there were. I mean, there's many factors involved in all these things. I think also, you know, I'm going to talk about how liberals, why liberals couldn't see what was right in front of their eyes. And since the the world of journalism consists a lot of a lot of people whose whose mentality is partakes of the uh, liberal American culture, that if the liberal American culture couldn't see it, they also couldn't see it. So that's another factor with the press. And they also had, I remember when there's a famous op-ed that came out. I don't know if I want to go down this avenue. Well, the famous op-ed that came out from uh, uh, Ornstein and uh, Mann in the Washington Post is in 2012. And they talked about how the it's the Republicans, the problems of the Republicans. And they're saying it's an outlier. And they describe a little bit how they don't acknowledge the legitimacy of, uh, of anybody, anybody's power but their own. Yes. And, 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 and they were applauded for their boldness and their, and nowadays they get congratulated on having seen it so early. And, you know, I, I, I'm a guy with a certain amount of resentment that, you know, I was saying that, I was saying that for, you know, in a couple thousand pieces I wrote to, you yeah. know, during W's administration. Anyway. So I, you know, I don't get no respect. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the the democratic world, including the press, uh, has failed to join the fight. And one of the reasons is okay if I keep moving ahead. Keep there, going. Yep. I got a list of three things, and you know, it's funny. You know, I, I'm polishing a piece that does exactly this. I mean, I've, I've got a new book if i can get a publisher where i do this you know like in 40 pages but i got a uh, an op-ed length thing that lists the three things that i think are one is in liberal america there's developed a culture in which there's an aversion to conflict Hmm. part of it is a belief real values a belief in goodwill toward men really being hungry to cooperate to achieve some good things and like that but part of it is also i believe a lack of stomach for the battle Mm. so we end up with a, a polarized america where we got one party that makes a fight over everything even when it's clear what the party should do for the sake of the country is cooperate to do something good for the country right and then we got this other party that won't make a fight over anything. And I'm not saying right now, but, you know, as I was playing uh, Jeremiah or maybe it was Cassandra for a, a decade, Democrats even now will sometimes talk about their friends across the aisle yeah, as if it's politics as usual. I mean, this is extraordinary. They aren't their friends across the aisle. They've been doing everything they could ever since Clinton was president to steal power, to to nullify the Democrats' power, to fight. They've acted like enemies, and the Democrats are still talking about their friends across the aisle. And part of that is they don't have the stomach to go toe-to-toe. I would love to see somebody rise up as a president of the United States and address this country the way Churchill talked to the British people when they faced the force of fascism. Yeah. 
And we don't have that. You know, if, if the American people were trying to understand what's going on uh, between the two parties right now in terms of the survival of American democracy, and they were depending on Joe Biden, whom I love very much, but if they were depending on Joe Biden to clue them in on exactly what we're up against if the Republican Party gets more power, they, they would be clueless because he's not telling them. Yeah. Well, I think, I think Americans want this to work they want them to work together i mean that's well yeah they are but they, you know it's quite clear that that's not going to happen i mean yes. what does it take i mean I don't they know. did it to obama for eight years yeah so you know, it's not unclear who they are i think obama is probably what you're talking about when you say this culture this aversion the conflict because i feel like he really tried yeah, I think he wanted to reach across. And, oh, he did it ad nauseum. Yeah, well, that was the problem. It was it. He just he did it for too long, and then by the time he said that's not going to work, it was too late, and there was this. Oh, way too late. I, I in nineteen in two thousand and nine, still Obama's first year, I published in the Baltimore Sun an open letter to Obama, saying they are trying to destroy your presidency. Yeah. And they're trying to destroy the things that you were elected to protect. So fight the fight. Don't avoid it. Don't say, when they say of death panels, I said, don't say, oh, there aren't any death panels. It's a lie. Say the Republicans are lying. Yeah. That's what the conversation should be about. So anyway, I wrote that. I, I, I First, I try to get face time with the president you can imagine what my odds were with the, for that but you know i'm a i'm a go for the you know swing for the fences kind of a guy hey. and, and, and i got a few credentials so it wasn't completely inconceivable yeah. just just pretty inconceivable i mean i had uh, oh well but anyway that didn't work so i wrote this open letter and hoped that the, somebody in the president's staff was reading it but he you know i, I couldn't believe with obama yeah, I, I thought the average 11 year boy year old boy on a playground has a better sense of what how you deal with republic with somebody who's dealing with you the way the republicans were yeah i i don't know you know he was just a nice guy i think he wanted to do the good thing and he oh, wanted very to be, decent guy and well he's a very thoughtful guy you know and that he's too, very smart yes and but he, he seems stupid about how to deal with the republicans yeah and, and and i can't say that i understand that any more than i can understand how the smart people i live among and i don't mean they're all smart but some of them run well-run businesses yeah believe completely unbelievable things like that the election was stolen from trump I, I who know. lost 60 out of 60 cases you know it's just abs and it was, it was done right in front of our I, eyes you could see it coming i say that all the time there's there's people i really respect on a level intellectually and I'll it's be, amazing i'll be like they went to court 60 times he lost 60 times but yeah, yeah, yeah. But it goes back. Well, listen, what did, we want to talk about Germany and Joseph uh, Goebbels. I want to attribute this to him. I believe it's him who said, if you well, keep I, telling I, I, the I, lie, I, it becomes the truth eventually. It's, you know, yeah, something in that Right, nature. I believe it. Yeah, yeah, right. The big lie. Yep. That was the Nazis' term. Uh, yeah. with ca capitalized. Of course, in German, a lot of things get capitalized. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But so the second thing about liberal America, besides an aversion to conflict, which I think Biden also has. Yes. Uh, I mean, one of the wonderful things about him is, you know, the, the headline about his trip to Asia was a charm offensive. Yeah. Uh, Biden's charm offensive in Asia. You know, that's, you know, that's, that's a great gift. He, he put NATO together uh, because he's such a great guy at building bridges. But that's not what we need with respect to the uh, Republicans uh, right now. And I don't know. I don't know how much of a Churchill he can be. But anyway, yeah. conflict is number one. Number two, in liberal America, there's been a a confusion about the realm of value, mm -hmm. of morals, the issue of good and evil. They they're in the shadow of. They're just subjective. They're just matters of opinion. Mm. I've I've taught at the college level. I've taught right uh, eighteen year olds. Uh, I've had Bible believing people will say about, well, w w was was what the Germans did at Auschwitz wrong? Because they're sounding like 
you know, they've got this liberal, uh, it, it's absorbed out of a, a philosophical uh, train in the in, in Western civilization of a century ago or something, positivism. If it's subjective, it's merely subjective and it's just a matter of opinion. So I say, so they answer, well, what the Nazis did at Auschwitz isn't what I would have done. But what they did was what they believed was right. And so it was right for them. No judgments to be made mm. because it's just a matter of opinion. And what's not objective is not really real. Hmm. And that is, I think, a fundamental confusion about the nature of value, which, as I said before, has to be grounded in the experience of creatures for whom things matter. Yeah. So, of course, it's subjective. Experience is subjective. If you can't have value without there being an experiential dimension, of course, it's going to have to be subjective. It's not, uh, therefore, idiosyncratic or random. It's what's been life-serving. Yeah. It feels rewarding because we have been structured by the evolutionary process that continually chose what can survive and to perpetuate its kind over what fails to do that. For that reason, we have been in, it's what selection made sure that we would be motivated to eat and drink when we, were, when we needed water mm -hmm. and do those things which lead to the birth of babies. Mm -hmm. You know, that's where, that's where value enters in. That's, that's where things, uh, where fulfillment gets, uh, gets its structure. So, but liberal, I, I did a talk radio show in, on uh, Wisconsin Public Radio once on the subject of judgment. And the, for the, these liberal callers, the only kind of judgment they felt willing to make, it seems, is that one shouldn't be judgmental. So if you don't take, if you don't take the realm of value as serious, like it really is wrong what happened at Auschwitz. You know, there are some things that are ambiguous. It's not easy always to tell what's right and what's wrong. But there are some basic values that are embedded in us and in the world Yeah. that, that take the black and white picture of the objective world and put a color into it that's real in yeah. the only way color could ever be real. You're smashing and my, uh, my gray if argument. You, <laughs> if you don't believe in, the, in that reality, you are not going to have your moral passion stirred by the sight of things like we see all the time now, you know, that we've been seeing since Newt Gingrich uh, and Rush Limbaugh arrived on the scene. You will not say, hey, what is going on here? These guys, you know, Newt Gingrich is a man who denounced Clinton's sexual picadillos. Uh, when it turned out at the very time he was guilty of things much worse, yeah. more destructive of his marriage. Yeah. We're talking about really broken things. And it, it's important to be revolted or have some strong passion about over, of not letting that spirit rule our world. And it didn't get quickened in the democratic liberal world quickly enough. Yeah. Yeah. Trump helped to waken people some. I was going to say, there, there's a... I do see over the last few years as if they're trying to fight back and, and denounce these assertions against them, but they don't seem capable of it. They, were, they never learned how to match that aggression. But yes, it, it used to be much more ambiguous before Trump. They... They seem to be much more accepting of certain behaviors and defend them based on this fundamental belief in the right, the right of someone to be a certain way, you know, or the First Amendment would protect that and on and on. And they're getting a lot of flack for that, by the way, now that they've gotten a little tough on it, as far as I see a lot of the well, Republicans yelling it, that they're fascists. I would say, I would say that future historians looking at the conduct of the Democrats up to this point, as the futures markets are saying, there's a three to one odds that the Republicans will gain control of Congress. Yeah. I mean, they've been, they've been doing this stuff right in front of everybody, trying to overthrow uh, an obviously free and fair election. I mean, as clear as any election we've had. And I would say that the Democrat, the, the future historians will say the Democrats 
up to this point have been very mild in denouncing what this party has become. But do you think part of that is the Republicans are very lock and step? They have been for a long time, even if they're getting pulled by Trump. They're still lock and step. I know they don't like him, a lot of them, but they, they still stuck with him for the power, the sake of power. But the Democrats, you always hear this phrase, they have a big tent, meaning like they're almost two or three or four parties in one that are in caucus together it's a much more diverse uh, party yeah yeah so but that that creates i think an issue of setting some type of value structure no i i i I, you know if the democrats truly had power i mean they don't have power it came very close Hmm. i mean it's true that if mansion and cinema had you know joined the other 48 they they could have had power. They, they had what they needed if they had unanimity, but not with the, if there was a single defector. So right. if the Democrats had power, there would be big battles, you know, over do we go, how far toward Bernie's program do we go, oh, yeah, like that. Of course. But see, the nature of the battle right now is not at that level. Yeah. We're talking about are we going to be a democracy or not? We're talking about, are we going to respond to climate change or not? We're talking about, are we going to work to harmonize the relationship between racial groups or to exacerbate their, their hatreds? Yeah. We're ta- you know, there's a long list of things. Yeah. And that's where we are. I mean, we're, we're with, uh, we're the, the ball is on our two yard line. We're fighting for the preservation of the most fundamental things, not to be pushed into the end zone. So in that sense, the differences between, you know, the various components of the Democratic Party are not significant. All that's really significant right now, and let's take the issue of guns. I don't think the Republicans are going to let anything happen. I don't either. But the issue is to inspire the American people who mostly want some things to happen. Yes. You know, what is it, 90%, 80% of gun owners want uh, universal background checks and 90% of the American people as a whole. And, oh, there are a lot of things that the majority of Americans want that were in Build Back Better. Yes. Yeah. Like, uh, what is it, like two-thirds or 70% or more want uh, Medicare to be able to negotiate lower prescription Mm -hmm. prices. And And the Republicans do everything they can to block giving the American people what they want. Why can't the Democrats just say that? Say, well, that's my point. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, this it should is, be full time. This is what's in it. This is what people agree on. You want if, this. If I ran the zoo, I don't know if you get the Dr. Zeus, uh, uh, to think oh, that it happened lie. in Mulberry Street. Uh, <laughs> if I ran the zoo, I would be, if I had the bully pulpit, and, and I've spent a lot of time in my life since I was since before the 1960 election, fantasizing about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I, if I were in the bully pulpit now, I would be pressing the battle continually. And, and I wrote a whole series that uh, got published on the web, a whole series called Press the Battle. You know, this isn't my first effort to get, to get awaken Democrats for the need to fight the fight that needs to be fought. Yeah. And the third reason why Democrats don't, because they don't see it. They've had trouble seeing it. And uh, the way I put that is that, that we live in an intellectual culture in which we don't have a practice of seeing things whole. I have put out to liberal audiences in my writings and lists like, what do we call something that, and then I would make a list of things, all different forms of brokenness, like takes from the poor to give to the rich, or exacerbates uh, racial hatred. You know, the kind of things I just mentioned. It's a li- I usually would like uh, to put in a half a dozen different kinds of things so you could see the comprehensive nature of what the Republican Party's doing in each case, mm-hmm. which is to spread a pattern of brokenness. But I don't say that. I just say, what have we traditionally called something that would do stuff like this? And it's a coherent force that spreads a pattern of brokenness. And liberal America has not put things together to see what the whole, it's the day's news. It's seeing things in pieces. It's not, it's not seeing the patterns that there are. 
that is the whole way we get to see when a force of brokenness takes over one of our actors on on the on the in the human world and starts to break things in everything it says and does yeah that's the pure case that we've been dealt and you have to put the pieces together to see it in baseball they say you can't hit what you can't see and the democrats since the rise of gingrich and limbaugh have not seen what was gathering against them and have not hit it the way it needs to be hit. So it's like the Republicans had a 30-year head start. The Democrats were certainly unaware how deep the divide was getting sowed, even as Clinton was getting impeached. And if you didn't see it there, I mean, he stood on the steps of Congress and declared Republicans' job was to make Obama a one-term president. It's not conspiratorial to say this when it's done in front of your face. But, yeah, like you said, I I worry about the Supreme Court as well because they've made it so that there's power, not even at the Supreme Court, just the lower courts as well, for however long they really want it, right? the next 30, 40 years. There's so much that can be done. And if they take over now the House and the Senate like they talk about, I know we have Biden in there at this point but yeah but who knows but who knows what's going to happen in in 2024 yeah, yeah my concern about, about the supreme court now i i think that they're going to as i said before i think they're going to hand down a bunch of decisions that depict a, a court that's unlike any previous court well maybe maybe the way the slaveholders handed down uh, dred scott in 50, 1857 or something like that mm-hmm. but this this is going to be more comprehensive than just the issue of slavery as an adjunct to the republic i'm i'm wondering what can be done i think it would be a mistake to simply go on respecting the supreme court's legitimacy in all the ways that we customarily have if they become something unprecedented it's going to require something unprecedented from the other side and i don't know what that other side uh, what, what that? Outside, I mean, they talk about expanding the court, you know. Yeah, but, but can't the Republicans just do that after the fact? I mean, I did, that's the one thing I don't understand how that would work. I, mm-hmm. I legitimately think that they probably should expand the court because we've had the same number of justices since I don't even remember nineteen, eighteen eighty or something like that. Well, I, I, I'll tell you what I've done. I've written to a. a a member of the House of Representatives who's interested in my stuff. He's also uh, become something of a star in the House of Representatives, and he's a major figure when it comes to the defender of the Constitution. I've proposed to this person that when the decisions get handed down in late June, I hope he'll think about how he might lead a movement Mm -hmm. to challenge what this court has become in whatever ways he can conceive of doing it effectively and constructively i don't i don't lay out you know any kind of detailed plan because i don't i don't really know but i don't want i i I would i would want the american people to be hearing at the very minimum this is not the way the supreme court has been before yeah this is not okay we are a constitutional democracy where we play by rules and we let those rules govern how the constitution is is interpreted not the partisan issues of a particular political party we need to do something about it what can we do yeah that at a minimum it's just it's a it's a scary time and i was hoping maybe maybe what's going on lately god forbid with with the gun violence and abortion that we'd see some kind of gathering of people to maybe sway this but i think it's quite possible i i i I think i think that both the abortion issue and the gun rights issue and the the report of the insurrection committee which is coming up have the potential to change the trajectory that the futures market says that we're on and I, i i they don't apparently see that these things are going to change yeah trajectory and maybe that's wise i tend to always envision the best possible scenario and work toward it yeah so i don't know you know i've been disappointed a lot of times yeah 
because the best scenario that I'm working toward hardly characterizes the whole history I've been watching unfold in this country, especially the last 20 years. You know, it's funny to think about the last 20 years. Think about the election of uh, George W. Bush and how much that changed probably everything. The Gore winning the, the popular vote but losing the election, you know, I think yeah. that set us on a course that's been... The, the W presidency is when I became frightened. Yeah. You know, I, I say that in 1970, I had this uh, sort of revelatory experience about the, the evolution of civilization. But in 2004, I had another life-changing experience, which I, I can't really explain. I can't explain either of them, actually, you know. Uh, but I, I was watching the Republican convention in 2004, and I just, I don't know, somehow I just saw something. I just saw something very dark. Uh, and, and, you know, it just... Uh, my life hasn't been the same since. Yeah. They, um, w, w was um, people have forgotten. I mean, I could, I could describe some very ugly things that people seem to have forgotten about the W years. It's amazing. I always say like the, the torture men. The, the, the rehabilitation of, of W. And it all, I think, stems down from Donald Trump's presidency and that he stayed away for a long time. That he went out so unpopular that he didn't he didn't go out anywhere. But I've heard people talk about Trump and then say they miss W. And I'm like, well, you don't you don't remember a lot of a lot of things that happened under his watch. Yeah, I I, I, I don't understand people too well. Yeah, I think that I think that maybe part of what I don't understand is I I spend a lot of time uh, learning you know studying these things and, and and i've got an intellectual habit of continually weaving things together to uh, uh you know and, and working on it yeah so the the terrible things that w did like the way he politicized 9-11 yeah in order to win the 2002 midterms mm-hmm. very very ugly very frightening and then the torture menu memo mm-hmm. which which set up a mechanism which could be used by that logic. Anything You could always have somebody write an opinion, and nobody could blame him because he just wrote an opinion. And then other people carry out what he said was okay to do, and you couldn't blame them because they rested on the, uh, on, uh, on the opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel. Yeah. Anything a president wanted to do, you could you Oh, could yeah, get, that, that's the unitary be, executive theory, I think it's called, right? Well, I don't... Or, that's a different theory, I think. Okay. But they, they never articulate the theory. They just put it into practice yeah. that they got John Yu to write a memo that would cover the ass of all the people doing the torture. Yeah. And would cover Bush's ass for you know, basically telling uh, uh, John Yu, write an opinion which allows us to do this. But, you know, it opens the door to, to the fascist regime that Trump would love to, ru- to run. It was that kind of thing there the rule of law broke down there we had treaty commitments around torture we were obligated by both international treaty international law and domestic law not to do what the bush administration was doing yeah but they created and and then they they campaigned against uh, this guy from georgia max cleland who had one of his limbs left from vietnam mm. and made him soft on terrorism oh man that is just so ugly. Yeah. yeah, he was pretty bad. He was scary, and 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 with and he chose to surround himself with the likes of Dick Cheney and Karl Rove. And it's funny. So he uh, he also used used nine eleven in a way, and he did it quick. And he it was it was kind of brilliant to go into Iraq in two thousand and three. For reasons like, of his own, yeah, less than uh, less than two years after nine eleven, but using this connection of nine eleven, but not even this faulty connection, he really rode the fear of of what had happened. Yeah, to to do that, and, and he he and he cultivated that fear throughout the rest of his presidency. Oh yeah, you know you 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 uh, you all the talk about war, the war on terror. 
it's not as though the American people were in a position to respond to, you know, those dangerous warnings in any way that they, they wouldn't, you know, it was useless except for his political purposes. I mean, I think of FDR to go back to that. I mean, he's a wartime leader when we really did have to mobilize as a whole country. I mean, people did have their victory gardens and gave up copper and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. There were things that people had to do because we weren't fighting a little al-Qaeda with uh, the CIA and special forces and stuff like that. We were fighting a major military power, two major political powers that required the full mobilization of the American economy to produce thousands of planes and tanks and ships and stuff like that. Right. And even so, FDR never worked to scare people. Yeah. That was what Bush did. And it's all so obvious. Why didn't the press see it? Why didn't the American people see it? Why didn't the Democrats denounce it? There's something rotten in the state of Denmark, and it's not just on these Republicans. Well, it's the on Democrats, the response yeah. of the whole body politic to things that are just so clear and broken. I, I really think when it came to Iraq, a lot of those Democrats that thought for it, first of all, I think they got boxed in. Yeah, that's, that's what Bush managed to do. Right, and, and but what, I also think they were scared that if it was successful, they would be on the wrong side of history. Some of them, I think. Yeah, they were in a difficult political position. And, you know, for a long time, it looked like if you didn't vote for the war in Iraq, you were done. Yeah. And then it looked like if you did vote for the war then in you Iraq, were you were done. Yeah. So, but, you know, it, it's no way to make a decision, but it's it's a way a sociopathic presidency may engineer to make a decision. There's so much that you could look at his presidency, and I, I kind of will say we're all living in his world, right? Now, even with Putin, he gave... Putin a lot of the the green light to do what he's doing I think in 2008 is that, when he is that true well so I, I think in 2008 didn't he go to the UN well, and basically say well, I want to make Georgia and Ukraine members well, of, of well, you mentioned I did write an op-ed piece in 2003 uh, I, I, I guess there must have been something that the Bush administration wasn't doing with Putin that I thought they should be doing because he was he was sabotaging the Russian democracy. Yeah. So maybe, yeah, I don't remember it very clearly. Yeah, I mean, he, I know he, he wanted to be involved, and I think they did help us a little bit with Afghanistan. Yeah. If I, if I remember that correctly. But yeah, by, he, 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 did, he did rally. He was part of what rallied behind the United States after we had been attacked. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so so I, I, I don't know what that choice would have looked like uh, so if you're sitting in the Oval Office. Uh, but it's so sad, though, because I, I feel like 9-11 was this moment that Americans were united, but the world united with us. And we had this opportunity to really yeah. do something. I don't know what that is. I don't have the answer for it, but well, he well, chose this, a different path. Yeah, we, we, we after 9-11... The Democrats sort of set aside their, you know, opposition party stuff, and it was yeah. a rally around the flag moment. And, yeah, and um, it wasn't obvious all the things that might come out of that, but we had uh, we had national unity. Yeah, of the kind that Pearl Harbor uh, yeah. uh, gave us, and um, what I'm talking about with Bush is what was visible was that at a certain point he saw how to leverage the trauma of 9-11 for his own political yeah. gain at the cost of the national unity that we had achieved. Yeah, it's the last time we had that unity. And yeah, so it's, it's there. And I don't know if there are other major reasons besides the three I've listed aversion to conflict, mm -hmm. confusion about matters of value, and failing to see things whole. I don't know if there's other big things going on in, in the rest of America that made us so incapable of checking the rise of this force of brokenness. But man, there it is now. Yeah. And, and, and I, hope, I hope it isn't too late. You know, Winston Churchill came to power he had been in the wilderness because he said the Nazis were going to do what they ended yes, up doing. Yes, he did. Yeah. So everybody hated Winston for being such an alarmist. But then, you know, after as, as France was on the verge of falling, 
and, and Norway, I think, had already fallen or something like that. And the, 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 German, the Nazis were just overtaking Western Europe. They made him prime minister at the age of 65. Yeah. It was almost too late. He, the Nazis had been gathering force from, they were rebuilding their military. Churchill was presenting them with, with, with numbers of what, how many planes the, the German Air Force now had that they were forbidden to have in the Versailles Treaty. Yeah. Uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they were gathering this force. And by the time that Churchill becomes prime minister, it was a step up from the Lord of the Admiralty, which was a step up from being in, in uh, political Siberia for being an alarmist. Yeah. By that time, Hitler's forces were, were crouched, ready to pounce across the Eng English Channel. And it was really almost too late. And he gives a speech, we will fight them on the beaches and all that yeah. stuff. Well, I hope it's not all too late right now. Yeah. But it's damn close. Yeah. Well, what people don't realize is, and you're talking about that situation, I mean, hopefully it's the same thing. With a few different moves, Hitler had a real chance of of domination of of all of Europe at least, and like not invading the Soviet Union. Correct, that's one. I mean, and he could have really. He, I, I don't know why he he didn't want to go to yeah into Britain. I mean, I well, guess he, he didn't want he to deal with the Navy, to, but he lost the Battle of Britain. You know, never in the history of the British Empire have so many owed so much to so few. Yeah. He lost controls of the sky. Yeah, and and he therefore couldn't risk sending all of his men across the channel like we did, you know, four five four years later, later. in D Day. Yeah, uh, under cover of darkness, you know. Yeah, but yeah, so he 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 did he wanted to, but the thing is, Hitler was a very broken man, and one of the kinds of forms that brokenness seems to take in in in, in these monstrous people is there's no such thing as enough hmm. they're they're wedded to conflict for one thing so hitler could have hitler almost got britain to come to terms with him churchill's cabinet wanted to come to explore coming to terms with him but he probably could have sat there and dominated western europe indefinitely and had his reich yeah. And left the Russians alone. But a broken man cannot rest on having enough because Stalin's territories, the, the breadbasket of Ukraine, he wanted it. Yeah. He wanted to dominate more. And it's the moreness that we see with the Republicans and we see with the people behind them, with the Koch brothers and for whom billions aren't enough. I know. I say that all the time. It's unbelievable how much they can have and still you need more. Want more. Still need and, more. And, you know, and then we have the Republican Party being a, uh, having hired themselves out on the issue of climate change to a very wealthy fossil fuel industry. Right. Um, but the thing, you know, in terms of things canceling each other out, you look at abortion, you look at gun rights, you look at climate change, you look at the American democracy. It's not divided between, well, some of the sins are on the Democratic side and some are on the Republican side. We're back to that pure case, mm. which requires us to see there is something coherent going on. Something has come together in a way which only sometimes happens in the human world. And when it does, it shows us something about the nature of the forces at work that drive the, the human story in directions that are not what we want. Yeah. You ask people, do you want to live in a world at peace or a world at war? A world in which there's, uh, there's ruled by uh, uh, goodwill toward men between people or hatred? I mean, you give people a whole bunch of those kinds of choices, and you know what people are going to choose. So something's going on that leads us to have a world that's being driven in the opposite direction from the one that the great majority of people would like things to go. And I think that that's worth studying. I, I agree with you. There, it, it'd be interesting to get to the bottom of that answer, though. It's just, it's so multifaceted. If you, I mean, I've been working on this stuff um, 
various components that I've been putting together for uh, 52 years. And I, if you feel like I've got, give any signs that maybe I've put together a coherent answer to some questions that are of interest to you, be, uh, uh, I'm happy to come back and have you put me through whatever cross-examination sure. or, or examination you want. I'm 76. I'm aware that the amount of time I've got to give what I've come up with is not infinite. Yeah. You know, I must be halfway through by now, you know? <laughs> so, I hope you're right, because that means I'm like a quarter through. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in your 40s. I am, yeah, yeah. 42. Gen Xer. Yeah, I've got two, two children uh, uh, who are both born in the 70s. Okay. Yeah, and uh, anyway, I was born in the 40s, and, and, and I'm playing this game right now. I mean, I, I've been on a mission, and I hope I don't sound pretentious. No, not at all. Uh, but I've been on this mission for 50-some years, and, and it's grown, and I have not accomplished the mission. I, you know, I, I got, you know, full-page review in the New York Times, you know, with the, the big idea that hit me in 1970. So I didn't... But you know, I really haven't gotten what, what I, I have. I think this could be helpful. Yeah. What what I've what I what I've put together, and I think that if I died tonight, a big chunk of it would just disappear with me. So I'm playing like a NFL team in the fourth quarter. Yeah. Hoping that you've got listeners, who if I died, you know, whenever that happens in you know seventy six more years, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that. They, they'd have looked into what I claim to have proven because they wanted to see, does this guy deliver the goods he's saying yeah. he delivered? And, you know, that is, that's, that is the, the root, that, the, the hope that leads me into this podcast world yeah. at this point in my life. Well, I'll tell you, the one thing I do like about the podcast world is I think it, it operates differently than... Uh, regular media at this point and, and i think people are starving for for information in a different way or a different point of tell, view tell me tell me the, the what's special about the podcast world that, that you're alluding well, to so I, I don't think it's co-opted yet so a lot of times what happens all right so let me let me put it this way right i'm i'm a child i would say of the 90s that's where i where i grew up and there was a weird social thing that happened or let's say like musically right so you had rap and then you had these you could say the grunge movement this might be a terrible way to put it but i have no idea where you're going okay where, where <laughs> i'm going is that they were born out of something that wasn't controlled at the time they were new and it wasn't until years later that corporate america basically figured out how to how to mm. wrangle in that machine. It was a time of innovation. Correct. And I think... In, in, in these cultural arenas. Yes, I mean, exactly. See, I need you because you, you make me sound better. <laughs> the, the 60s and the 70s felt that way, That too. was the 60s and yeah, 70s. Like, well. like uh, the Beatles took us into, into areas that, uh, yes. you know, Frank Sinatra. I love Sinatra. Yeah. But Frank Sinatra didn't take us into the No, I love the Beatles, honestly. I'm a, yeah. I'm a huge Beatles fan. Simon and Garfunkel's another oh, Yeah. And Aretha. I, like, <laughs> I love that time, actually, in music, too. The Doors, I loved. Uh, so, okay, well, what's but, this got to do with the price? All right, so I, I think, you know, the, the podcast world hasn't been co-opted yet by if you want to call money interests or just um, s some kind of special interest like media in general has I think well, it's could, still a ground you could do your spot. thing even if it were right correct I mean you know I, I write my op-eds I mean I, I, I'm not hindered in what I say by the fact that the press has let us down right you know? and if you've got if you've got a mission and you've got an audience You've got access, you know, whatever else is going on right. in the podcast world, even if it becomes, you know, music, MTV on you. Right, right. No, but see, like the point I do this is for I like to think and I like to get points of views and I like to learn different ways to think. And I hope it rubs off on other people that there's not just one or two ways of looking at the world. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, this, this is a risky question for me to ask when mm -hmm. we're recording, but, you know, as you envision what it is that you want to deliver to your audience, 
um, and I've been a, a host of a radio show, so I, you know, I'm sure you've got, and your introduction indicates something about yeah. what you want. Um, how, how, did, how did what we've done in the last, uh, well, I guess it's almost it's a couple almost hours. almost two hours, yeah. <laughs> You're my longest so far. How, how, how does, how, how, are we going to do it in one swoop, or are you going to be part one? Or two. Uh, well, I'll have to see how it breaks down. Usually, okay, I don't okay. break it into two. Okay. But. Well, have we been delivering for your people the kind of thing that's been, you know, your ideal in taking oh, on yeah. this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Definitely. Right. Just it, it, I like the way. It's, it's certainly my, I mean, I'm determined to, you know, like, I feel like, I feel like it's, uh, you know, it's a baseball image, you know, like get wood on the ball yeah every time you know i used to like to watch before a major league game you know the pitcher pitching batting practice mm -hmm. and i think wow they, you know those pitches you know they may not be tricky but you know this guy's hitting every one of them yeah you know, that's my i my ambition in a conversation like this is every time i swing the bat i want to get good wood on the ball yeah but but I don't necessarily understand what other people will feel this, you know, like, Oh, that was driven nicely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Well, some of that has to do with, I guess, how, how I drive the car as well. I usually let the guests drive though. That's totally, that's kind of my, well, you, my you've, you've certainly, you've, you've given me a, uh, what I feel is a nice combination of um, places to take off from Yeah. and room to do my riff. Uh, on the theme that you introduced, uh, yeah. you know, like to, to put it into jazz terms. Which, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate yeah. that. That's what I, I try to do. And uh, it, it depends on who the guest is. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it's uh, it doesn't well, work. Let me either. ask you another question. And this is also risky. Do you have a feeling that we should do this again? Oh, I would love to. Yeah. I, right. would, I would love to do it again. Um, well, if nominated, I will run, and if elected, I will serve. All right, yeah, I will. I will hold you to that. So well, you won't have any problem holding me to it. You know, like I, I'm this player. Uh, you know, you remember when Tom Brady uh, yeah. led the uh, New England Patriots to the Super Bowl when they were behind by something like oh, 21 points in, yeah, in, in the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. You know, okay, that that's the image in my mind. You know, I'm not gonna. I, I'm gonna leave it all on the field. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you doing that because I, I had a I had a great time. Like I said, it's probably my longest one. It definitely is my longest one. But I think it's going to serve people really well and and help. Okay. Help. Well, I'm aware that this time has come that I'm supposed to go to a birthday party. Oh yeah, let me. I've let got me a dish know. and it's already ready, and, and I think I'm dressed warmly enough to walk over there. But anyway, uh, life goes on. Yes. Even. As the world darkens, and that is as it should be, except for the world shouldn't be darkening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for this opportunity. Oh, well, thank you. And uh, I'll, I'll be talking to you again. All right. All right.